Welcome to The Lisa Show. Mindy Corcoran was at the pinnacle of her career when tragedy struck. She lost her father and son in seconds after a white nationalist gunned them down in a Jewish community center parking lot. And since the loss of her family members, Mindy has started a podcast written Healing a Shattered Soul and co-founded the Faith Always Wins Foundation, all focused on helping others find healing after trauma. Mindy is incredible. She's with us today to tell us about her journey of healing, forgiveness, compassion, and how she shares those with others. Welcome, Mindy. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate the opportunity to speak about our family. I I appreciate you putting it that way. I think when people hear your story, they're struck by the immediacy that you had jumped to healing and forgiveness. So before we get ahead of ourselves, I mean, these tragic events that you have experienced, and I'm so sorry for your loss of of April 13th, uh, affected a lot of people in lasting ways. And I'd, I'd love to just start with your perspective on, on your story and where you'd like to begin. Thank you. Well, just to give some context, uh, yes, on April 13th, 2014, my father was driving my son to the Jewish Community Center in Overland Park, Kansas. My son was a performer and singer, and he was going uh, to an audition to sing, a singing competition. And a white supremacist had uh, planned, pre-planned, evidently, to murder Jews that day. That was his intent, and he stated that during the trial. He murdered my dad. Um He ambushed him and then turned the gun on my son and murdered him. And then he drove to another location, uh, the village Shalom, and murdered Terry Lamana. So there were three lives lost that day. All three people were Christian. And I say that Hmm. really only to let people understand that anyone can be hurt by hate, not necessarily just the targeted individual. Yeah. Oh, I'm just so sorry for such loss that you've experienced, and I appreciate you talking about it. Um, uh, one thing that you did mention in your story that I was struck by, that uh, that a group of interfaith people in the hospital really helped bring your, your family comfort in the immediacy of that. Can you tell us a little bit about that group and, and, and the impact that they had on you that day? They did. They did. Thank you. Uh, that just warms my heart that you um, that you saw that and that, that brought to, it was brought to your attention. Yes. So I wasn't familiar with the word interfaith, and um, and as I was uh, doing research, I, I knew at the time that many people were touching our lives and helping us, and I knew that um, the head of the emergency room had come in to tell us that our son, my son Reed, had lost his life, but I didn't know his faith at the time, and later I learned that he is Jewish and that the care team that received REIT from the ambulance uh, were all of different faiths. There were two different um, Christians. There was a Christian, a Catholic, a Jewish person, and um, a Muslim. And they all came together in that moment because that was their job and that's what they would want to do. Mm -hmm. And then I wrote about that because it was very healing to go back and see that even from the moment tragedy struck, when when one individual wanted hate to win, it was not going to win. Love was winning, mm-hmm. and humans were pulling together in in that feeling in the name of love to try to help Reed survive. I appreciate this the story uh, that the component is interfaith and that it's this union of everyone and and taking a step back and looking at it and recognizing we're, we're sort of all interfaith right Deep, people will have different ways at coming uh, to a, a, a supreme being or or however you know they would describe it but that we all have that faith that unites us together we have those thing that those things and those opportunities to be able to help one another and that that combats hate. People will hear your story, though, and know that that is one of healing and forgiveness and compassion. And, you know, when I think of a loved one, you know, being senselessly murdered, Mm -hmm. those are not words that come to my mind. I don't think of healing. I don't think of compassion. And I don't think of forgiveness. Help us know how you came to those feelings and emotions. Richie, thank you for that question. It, 
I have struggled with how I came to that as well. So my body felt that. I, I Other than explaining that the Holy Spirit was with me immediately, I don't know how to explain what I did in the first 24 to 48 hours, which was I attended a vigil. I interviewed with people. I talked with people. And I, I knew my message was, I felt that my message should be, and my message was, we had a lot of love, we had an amazing life, and we were going to need to figure out how to move forward. That was what I physically and emotionally felt and I spoke about. I had to go back and research and really research myself and, and go within myself and say, how did I mm-hmm. have that compassion? How did I have that forgiveness? And I look at my family of origin. I look at my grandparents and the love they shared and through their faith, um, their faith was Christianity. And I look at the what my father did. My father was a uh, physician, medical physician, and he cared for people medically. He would care for anyone, no matter what. And I learned that those were experiences that I had. I, it's it's hard to explain, but I felt that way. I felt the humanity. Um, around me that was in such sorrow. And I wanted people to know that my father and son were in heaven. That was so important to me. And as I started to say those words, live those words and believe those words, I had a calmness and compassion and forgiveness come, come through me. So that's where that came from. And I agree with you. And I like to say we're human first. Mm-hmm. We are all human first, and and then um, and then our faith gets layered into that. But we can still uh, and should love one another and respect one another. We're speaking with Mindy Corporone about forgiveness and how to have compassion for those who hurt us, and we're talking about the tragic events that she and her family experienced. Uh, when she lost her father and her son in just mere seconds. And I appreciate you ex- expressing this sort of the process about that, that that it seems to me that you don't fully understand and, and, and or at the time and have now had time to reflect on that. And as you've had time to reflect, I'm sure that you've seen how how this ex- an entire experience has not only affected you, but others. Um, specifically, someone who was uh, affected was an Army combat medic named Thomas Bates. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about him and, and, and the impact that, his story, that your story has had on him. Yes, Thomas Bates is written about in the, in the book, Healing a Shattered Soul. And I felt it was important. He was very important uh, and, uh, during the day, and I didn't meet him until several years later. Oh, wow. Thomas Bates was at the Jewish Community Center when the murders happened, when they heard gunshots. So they didn't know, you know, that it was murder yet, and they heard gunshot. And he was one of three people who ran to the scene of the crime instead of away. And he knew at the time that he was probably and was the most qualified person on campus to help because he had been a an army medic, as you mentioned. So he ran to the scene of the crime. He saw that my father uh, was deceased. My my father was killed on contact, but Reed still was having some shallow breathing, and he was unconscious. I want to make sure and make that clear to your listeners. I have processed that for hours and hours and hours that um, he did never, he did not regain consciousness. And Thomas and I have also discussed that. But what happened to Thomas was at that time, he treated the wound and he, mm-hmm. he treated who he thought was the victim. And because physically and visually Reet was the victim, but I appeared on the scene and I wanted to be near Reet and I wanted to help in some way or hold Reet's hand and Thomas was working as a medic would, his goal was to save the victim that he saw, the wounded. And after he, years, a few years later, after he had his own children and held his own children in his arms, after he had his own medical scare, he realized that the person that is injured and looks like they are the ones with the wound are not typically the only wounded and he realized that um, he needed more compassion. And we talked about how Reet's compassion passed through to him as Reet was dying in his arms. 
And he, he started realizing that he could have and possibly should have had me come and be with Reed at that time. And he asked for forgiveness. And I told him I was not at all hateful toward him. I understood that I was where I was supposed to be. Interwoven into your story is um, th- this overwhelming understanding of, of of what some people would deem to be coincidences, right? Um, but to the, the the faithful or to the believing, um, you know, we certainly recognize these things to be more more God inspired or or God-led occurrences, and you refer to them as God-winks, and I thought that was sort of interesting. I wondered if you could expound on that a little bit. I do, Richie. I refer to them as God-winks, and there is a book called God-winks, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the author, but if someone is interested in that, there is uh, material specifically on that. And I also refer to them as messages that I get God winks and messages all the time. And, and one in particular is a yellow butterfly that appeared within a week. Um, there were other messages that came in the form of people. Uh, a friend of ours cooked a meal, having no idea that everything he prepared would have been my son's favorite. Mm. And um, our younger son, Lucas, sat down to this this feast and said, and this is everything Reet would love. And I said, I know. I said, I think I think God is talking to Dominic and Dominic doesn't even realize it. So there are messages for all of us. And I am so thankful that I can see them and that my arms and, and eyes are open to them each and every day. I appreciate you sharing those details. I know that sometimes those are sacred things to sort of talk about, but I think in sharing them, there's a, a common humanity and that you, you unites us together. Um, what does your grief look like today? My grief today comes in um, smaller waves. So if you will imagine an ocean that is raging and angry, and the waves are just crashing, crashing, crashing. That is early grief. That's very much anyone's early grief where you feel as if you are drowning and you can hardly catch your breath. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you do not catch your breath. And now I'm in a more um, calm, uh, a calm sea, if you will. And the anguish, the sorrow are... um, are there, and I know they're there. They're, I, it's not that they're behind a closed door. They, they sit there and simmer on occasion. They appear on Mother's Day, Father's Day, Reet's birthday, my birthday. They appear when my dad and son should be talking to me and should be with me. And, and they appear when I hear of other people having something difficult happen to them, when I hear of other shootings and and murders mm-hmm. and specifically children losing their lives to such violence it affects me in a visceral way so so that's my grief it's not um it's not as tormenting and long lasting but it is there you know you you mentioned that these things continue to occur today Un- uh, unfortunately you know this happened to you and it happens to others, maybe not every day, but certainly frequently enough that that there is a, a call to action to those of us who think that love and and faith should win out over hate. Your message in, in you know twenty twenty one in in today to those to those people, not only who might suffer under these circumstances, but who live in a world that that they don't seem to recognize and that they would want to be better. What, what is your message to those individuals? You know, that's very, that's very touching to, to be able to have the opportunity to speak uh, to that platform on Reet's 21st birthday, which was actually in 2020. And we were all in the throes of COVID. I felt that I needed to do if you will, something more. I know Hmm. I had started a podcast, I had written a book and run a foundation, but I just wanted to do something specifically for my son. And I gathered eight black women and eight white women, and we started having conversations monthly. And we named it uh, REIT Sisters. It's R-E-A-T, and it stands for, it's an acronym, obviously, but it's for my son's name, but it's Respect, Engage, Appreciate, Trust. And I would take those words, respect, engage, appreciate, trust, and ask people 
to consider that most of us do not have ill intentions. You know, 98% of us want to live good, valued, loving lives with one another, with, with others, et cetera. And those, there are those few that either have um, a mental illness or they have evil. And I, I, evil is real. I didn't know that evil was real until I saw evil happen. Mm. So there are, there are those people out there that we need to have some caution around. And when we hear that um, person or those people espousing hate, I believe that the rest of us have a responsibility. Those of us who consider love and faith on a daily basis, we have a responsibility to say no when we hear hate rhetoric. Yeah, that's our responsibility, and I appreciate you being so open about it, and, and I wish you the very best moving forward. I appreciate both of you. Thank you, Lisa and Richie, for the time. Mindy Corporone, uh, you can find her online at faithalwayswins.org. Uh, check out her book, Healing a Shattered Soul. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show. We'll be right back. Welcome to The Lisa Show. Job interviews can be nerve-wracking for many, but knowing how to dress and behave is halfway on bringing you the success that you're looking for, right? The proper outfit helps you build the confidence, you know, that you have. And also, it, it kind of informs a little bit of your personality and who you are. It can also help you be memorable to those That's who would interview true. you. And that, along with knowing how to act and what answers to give in your interview, will be your best allies in your career path. So here to help us with that, we've invited Justin Jones, BYU Career Director. Thanks for being here, Justin, as a friend of the show. Oh, I thank you. Happy to be back with you. Now, listen, we need a refresher because (laughs) a lot of us have been, you know, doing Zoom calls and business meetings with pajama bottoms. And you know what I mean? Like, it's time to spruce things up, knowing that this is a time of pivoting for a lot of people career wise. Um, And and I'm I'm curious when people come in to talk to you for advice, what are their biggest fears and concerns um, coming into an interview? You know, that is a great question. And they vary, but really their biggest concern is I want to make a good impression. And I probably have very little time to do that. In fact, the first impression is created within the first three seconds of meeting someone. So whether that's in person or via Zoom or online, you want to put your best foot forward. And so that's really what I visit with uh, with my clients is how are you going to make a stunning first impression that then you can build on throughout the interview. What are the worst mistakes that you see people making when they choose an outfit for an interview? Oh, goodness. So many. Um, (laughs) We would love some good stories. (laughs) Well, uh, let's keep the food and the wrinkles and the stains off of your clothing. I work with college students, um, and perhaps maybe they aren't quite as professional in their everyday wear. So, you know, get an iron, take it to the dry cleaner, get something that is pressed clean and presentable. Uh, For those who have a bit more experience, what we're really looking at is stick with conservative colors. For men, uh, charcoal gray, navy blue, even uh, something lighter, like a a lighter blue is acceptable. For women, you probably want to stick uh, on the face side with Um, solids rather than patterns, but again, a nice neutral color, tans, things like that. But stay away from the power suits or the power colors. This isn't the time for that. You're not running for president. You're looking for a job. So uh, the red power suit, not great. Uh, (laughs) The pink uh, power suit from, you know, uh, an attorney movie that we saw with a young girl with blonde hair and a pink suit, probably not the thing you're going to do. Gotcha. <laughs> We're visiting with uh, career director at Brigham Young University, Justin Jones, friend of the show, talking about uh, 
maybe sort of simmering our nerves as we get into job interviews. You've talked a lot about dress. Uh, it's not just about what you're what you're wearing no. when you go into these job interviews. I want to take the remainder of our conversation and talk about how we can prepare to answer the questions. That's what we're being is interviewed. What what <laughs> what great um, pieces of advice do you have? We've planned it out. We set our clothes out the night before. Uh, we're in the room now. What do we need to be thinking about or not thinking about? Okay. Well, one of my favorite lines from a well-known musical about a little orphan is this. You're never fully dressed without a smile. A smile can communicate so much more about your interactiveness, your approachability, and your confidence. So never forget to smile and an interview is a high pressure situation yeah. so that is the piece that most people forget oh interesting is that they need to be themselves they need to smile they also need to practice rehearse and there are so many ways to do that you can practice with a friend you can practice with a cat or dog shaking hands you can also practice in the mirror and there are so many thanks to zoom you can even practice recording yourself on a Zoom call, oh, true. just re- giving answers to questions that you might feel uncomfortable, and then you can see your body language. You can play it back. You can send that to your mom. You can send that to your job coach. You can send it to your friends, and they can give you feedback on, oh, well, you have food in your teeth. You're slouched in your chair. You look or appear like you are still in your bed. Perhaps you should get a better Zoom background, mm. something with a, a blur filter, so that distractions are not happening. I'd like to ask you about the questions themselves for the interview. Likely there are some standard questions that you expect an employer or a prospective employer to ask you, but there's always going to be that unexpected question. And and how do you recommend people react if they're asked a question that they weren't really prepared for or kind of catches them off guard? Um, probably just turn red and slide under your chair and Stop. Try and crawl out of the room. <laughs> okay, all right. Oh wait, no, that's probably what. No, the opposite. Have done. I'd be Neapolitan. <laughs> we didn't ask you about ice cream. I don't know. I was expecting something else. So with that, inevitably there will be probably a question to catch you off guard, and a lot of times they'll do that. The biggest one is what's your greatest weakness, and people blow that one all the time. But oh, really? really? What? what, what why do you at, say that? No, I want to. I want to ask about that. Um, Well, it's a negative-oriented question, and it gives you a great opportunity to shoot yourself in the foot. Um, The most common answer to that one, heard it a thousand times, is I'm a perfectionist. Worst answer ever, because everybody's already said it. It doesn't do anything to set you apart from anyone. Okay. And it's so contrite these days. So I would stay away from I'm a perfectionist. However... If you can think of something that you are continually working on, so say you're going into, uh, we'll use the banking field again. Okay. That is highly customer facing. Mm -hmm. There's always work that you could do on communication. So if I were going to respond to that, what's your greatest weakness? I would not say communication is my greatest weakness. Don't own weakness. Own improvement. So what you're going to do with that is say, that is a really good question. And in my years of customer experience, I've found that many times customers can ask me challenging questions. What I've found as I continually work on that day by day is that if I will listen intently to what their needs are and also listen for perhaps underlying needs, that I am far better at answering their question and making sure their needs are met. I do that on a daily basis. I've done it for years, and I would love to do that for you. Wow. A great response. A great response. Yeah. Seriously. Did like, I'm just, like, you're hired. Wait, what? Are, what? Someone just dropped a <laughs> mic. Someone just dropped a mic in here. Do you want to hey. work with us? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Done. Justin, great suggestions, not only from how we dress, but how we approach the interview that will help p- people calm nerves. As we know, people are applying and trying and transitioning yeah. to new jobs right now. Uh, there's one more question that Lisa and I have for you before we let you go. Uh, <laughs> I hope the you're really is, ready for this. You have one more question and I have one more tip. So let's get it in there. Uh, the, well, then then may I insist that you incorporate the tip oh. within the answer to this question. Uh, Justin, uh, what 
if you were an ice cream flavor, what <laughs> ice cream flavor would you be? <laughs> so sorry. That is a great interview question. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Neapolitan before because you get three different flavors in one, all of them great, but in unique ways. And when you combine them, the synergy is absolutely fantastic. That's what you'd be getting in me as an employee is at least three different flavors. And when combined, a synergistic um, explosion that will blow your mind and really help your bottom line. So mm. with that, that's what I, ice cream I would choose. And I would make sure that that ice cream wore glasses because several studies have shown that people who wear glasses are typically perceived as more intelligent, more competent, and industrious than those without spectacles. So wear the spectacles and get the job. Okay, I like that. Do you see how seamlessly yeah. he went from answering your question to giving you additional information? We already he's hired. Hi we already he's hired. hired well, him. he's getting a promotion. Listen, you own this place. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome, Justin. Why, thank you. It's it, always a pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you for being on the show. Have you ever been in the middle of a conversation with someone? Oh, I'm sorry. Hang on. And you're really engaged in it, and out of nowhere, you just yawn. No, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, it's it's like you know you're not trying to be rude, and 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 even like you may even be well rested. It's just something that happens, and it's almost like you can't help it. Well, that strange bodily function is something we rarely think about, after all, because we feel like you can't really do anything about it. But here to help us understand a little bit more about this curious habit that we all do is Dr. Dr. Andrew Gallup, Assistant Professor of Biopsychology at the New York Polytechnic Institute. Dr. Gallup, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. By definition, what, what is a yawn? What is, the, what is the purpose of it? Well, it's, uh, it's not quite clear what the function of yawning is. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of research that's been conducted within the last decade or so, which suggests that yawning might serve to cool the brain. Okay. So that this yawn takes uh, into account this uh, two-phase kind of uh, action pattern, this deep inhalation of ambient air combined with this uh, powerful extension and contraction of the jaw. And those two actions together uh, appear to increase blood flow to the skull and provide a mechanism of countercurrent heat exchange, which serves to increase blood flow, uh, cool blood flow to the skull while um, uh, in promoting venous drainage of, of warmer blood away from the brain. This just sounds like that uh, you're saying that it's the brain's equivalent of sort of like a fan on a computer. <laughs> is, 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 that a, is that a good equivalent? Uh, it's similar, yeah. I mean, uh, aside from the fact that a fan might be continuously running, sure. right, yawn <laughs> is, a, is, a, is a relatively short duration action, but uh, appears to be triggered by rises in brain temperature. So we've done some research on um, on rats where we could monitor moment-to-moment -moment changes in brain temperature mm -hmm. before and after um, different types of activities, including yawning. And right before the animals uh, yawn, that's preceded by a rapid rise in brain temperature. So similar to the way huh. a, a fan might kick on sure. um, or a thermostat might kick on as, as, as temperature rises, yawning and the mechanisms that drive that action pattern are triggered by deviations in brain temperature. So as brain temperature begins to rise, that this uh, activates yawning, and that following the execution of this behavior, we see that brain temperatures, uh, slow, uh, the rise in brain temperatures uh, stop, and then brain temperatures begin to diminish back down to baseline levels. So when I hear you explain this, it seems to me, oh, yeah, this is just a function of just being a mammal. But there is like an association that we have with it, that it's rude to to yawn. Do, uh, do you have any sort of, I guess, sort of social history as to know why, why that is? The, the origins related to the social stigma of yawning um, aren't well documented. And there appear to be uh, differences in the social perception of yawning from one culture to the to the next. Hmm. So that 
in the United States, it's I would agree, yawning in the presence of others and, and under certain uh, contexts is considered rude, inappropriate. Uh-huh. That you know, yawn should be stifled. Uh, certainly, we want to cover our mouth if we yawn in the presence of other people. Um, it, it's a fascinating uh, kind of social phenomenon that that deserves more attention. Um, but by stifling yawns or inhibiting uh, yawns, they could that could be actually counterproductive to the individual. So one of the functions of, of yawning, if, you know, ultimately, if yawning serves to increase blood flow to the skull and uh, maintain an optimal brain temperature, what that does is it helps promote uh, uh, mental efficiency, increasing alertness and arousal to the individual. So we often yawn during periods of state change, sleeping to waking or inactivity to activity, vice versa. And the the action of, uh, of yawning might help kind of reinstate a mental processing that, that keeps the individual alert and vigilant. So therefore, if we stifle these yawns or inhibit them in social contexts where our attention might be really important, it could be counterproductive. We're talking huh. with Dr. Andrew Gallup about yawning. Uh, given what you just told us, then I think I'm going to start leaning more into yawns, like in meetings and in opportunities <laughs> that I have to be with other oh, individuals, good. with the excuse, if I'm understanding you correctly, I'm just trying to increase my mental yeah. efficiency. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds silly, given the given the context uh, of, you know, socially about yawning, but I think it, it, promoting yawning in social settings would be would be really um, uh, a positive thing. There's That's certainly so no negatives mm-hmm. associated with yawning, uh, but there certainly could be negatives associated with inhibiting or stifling yawn. Oh, really? You mentioned um, that stifling your yawn is bad or has negative effects, and I wanted to pick that up and and ask you to explain a little bit more about what what those negative effects are. Well, it, given the function of yawning increasing, in increasing blood flow to the skull and promoting uh, uh, optimal brain temperature, it's the action pattern of the yawn that facilitates those actions. So by stifling the yawn, inhibiting the, the powerful gaping of the jaw, for example, that is going to reduce the, 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 the subsequent blood flow to the brain. So therefore, the, the deviations in brain temperature or, or cerebral blood flow aren't going to be uh, uh, effectively uh, modified hmm. if, you, if you stifle the yawn, which is only going to kind of uh, lead to further issues related to blood flow and, and attention in a, in a short-term setting. So in other words, the yawn itself helps to kind of reinstate these physiologic, neurologic, and attentional processes. And if you stifle the yawn, you're you know, basically inhibiting uh, hmm. that, that, that effect. It, uh, do every animal, does every animal yawn? So yawning is, um, has been documented across all classes of vertebrates. So that means animals with a, with a backbone. So that includes uh, mammals, uh, birds, reptiles, okay. uh, fish, and amphibians. Uh, we have done large-scale comparative analyses of yawning to try and document its ubiquitous nature across uh, uh, vertebrates, and we've shown that it is at least pervasive and widespread across mammals and birds. Uh, further research needs to examine the, the prevalence of yawning in uh, the other three classes of vertebrates, uh, but similar types of, of kind of gaping, jaw-gaping patterns have been observed. So it suggests that, that this behavior is really old evolutionarily. That it, meaning that it evolved um, a really long time ago with the emergence of jawed vertebrae and that it has been preserved or what we'd say conserved evolutionarily ever since. And in order for a behavior to be so ubiquitous and conserved evolutionarily, widespread across uh, these diverse classes of, of species, that indicates that it serves an adaptive function. Because if it didn't serve an adaptive function, mm-hmm. it's likely that it would be lost, at least within some lineages. But the fact that it is so common suggests that it does serve some underlying basic physiological purpose. And, and research suggests that that is related to, again, blood flow to the skull and brain temperature. 
So this is way more than I ever thought a yawn was. I right? know. I had never considered all of this, and I love you know having someone that that knows the answer to all these questions. I would suppose that I have only one more question before we let you go, and that question is: if it is a, a cooling of the brain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, when Lisa yawns, why do I yawn? Does, does it make my brain hot when she yawns? And that's why I'm like, what? Or how can I stop it? Do I need a helmet of ice or something so that I'm not constantly yeah, yawning? Drink when ice other, water? When Did, would other that people, work? Yeah. How come that is? Well, yawn contagion is really interesting. And obviously, it is something that, that humans uh, show. Other non-human animals have also uh, been shown to yawn contagiously as well. It's not as ubiquitous as the spontaneous form of yawning. Uh, but other highly social species um, have been shown to yawn in response to, to others' yawns as well. Now, the function of that, uh, we know even less about than we do the function of spontaneous yawning. But I believe that our understanding of spontaneous yawning lends itself to a better understanding of yawn contagion. So it, because spontaneous yawning and contagious yawning are uh, uh, identical motor action patterns, they're indistinguishable from one another. One is triggered by underlying uh, physiological changes. The other is triggered by social stimuli. But once the yawns are activated, they appear to be the same which implies that the physiological consequences of both yawns are also the same. So that if Lisa yawns uh, spontaneously uh, because of um, uh, rises in her brain temperature, Mm -hmm. and that causes others around her to yawn, the individuals that yawn contagiously are also going to benefit from the same physiological processes or changes associated with the yawns. So as a consequence, Everyone in the room, Lisa and everyone that yawns in response to Lisa's yawn, should show an improvement in alertness, mental processing, and uh, blood flow to the skull. So that contagious yawning may have evolved to promote kind of collective patterns of of group behavior, uh, enhancing collective vigilance among, among groups. So yep. what I love about this, Connecting it all. giving giving me now the perspective where once upon a time we thought it might be rude to yawn in a meeting and or teamwork activities. Yeah. Not only am I improving my own mental acuity, I'm also helping everyone else by really leaning into that yawn. I'm not sure if that's what you <laughs> wanted know. me to take away from this conversation, <laughs> Dr. Gallup, but know that that is what I took away from this conversation. Dr. Andrew Gallup is an assistant professor of biopsychology at the State University of New York Polytechnic. Institute. If you thought our discussion on why we on was interesting, tell your friends what you learned and have them listen to The Lisa Show for more interesting discussions like this one. Dr. Gallup, thanks for being on the show. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Lisa Show. Welcome to The Lisa Show. Most of us gossip. Yeah, I said it. And people have been saying it about you. No, just kidding. (laughs) And oftentimes we think, oh, it's just harmless, right? Sometimes when your loved ones are gossiping, it's just hard to stop the trend, especially if they have really great information for you. But there is an insidious energy of gossip that affects all aspects of our relationships. So how can we recognize when we default to gossiping and how do we stop the cycle? Well, as part of Mental Wellness Monday, we're joined by therapist in front of the show, John Sovic, to help us recognize this dangerous trend in ourselves and help us create better habits. Welcome, John. Hey, Lisa, did you hear that rumor about Ricky? Yeah, tell me, (laughs) tell me more. I heard it too. (laughs) And that's how it starts. I know, I immediately like leaned in. And and it's true. I think sometimes we we do it unknowingly. Do you feel like that's the way that we mostly do it? Or do you think that most people know what exactly what they're doing? Oh, no, I think gossip has become such an unconscious reaction. It's what people do when they gather together. It's what people do when they take a break at work. It's what people do when they gather for a drink, you know, at the end of the day. It's what people do at barbecues. And it has turned into this thing that just has become this almost automatic habit where we don't necessarily talk about things of depth, but we're really ready to pass on that juicy piece of information. And usually the juiciness 
is something that is like harmful about that person. It's very rare hmm. that the gossip tends to lean toward like, oh my goodness, did you hear that Lisa won an Academy Award? Yeah, right. You know, we don't gossip that direction. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, and, and I think too, the word gossip seems sort of vague. I mean, I think we think of, of sort of, in, in kind of in a sexist way, like teenage girls, right? Or, or we think that it's just um, something that other people do. It's it because it seems vague. How do you define it? I define gossip as us using words that we are not speaking to the person directly that may be harmful to their well-being or image. Okay. Um, if you think about it. Gossip usually never happens. Like, I wouldn't turn to you and say, Lisa, I've got a piece of juicy gossip about you. I would yeah. turn to Richie and say, like, I've got a juicy piece of gossip about Lisa. And if we look at that moment, that little moment right there, that I'm not going directly to you, that's another one of those moments where we're defining gossip. It's a process called triangling. And rather than me going directly in you, to you and saying, hey, Lisa, I heard this thing. Is this what's really going on? And you're like, no, where'd you hear that? It's like, I was in the gossip mill. Ooh. I go to someone else and I gossip about you. And that just keeps the process going. So it's not direct contact. Mm -hmm. It's this indirect contact, often insidious, often based on trying to bring someone down a peg. And we just need to be so conscious that that's happening in our world. So why is it that we feel like gossip is so harmless then? Because it's so prevalent. Hmm. It's showing up everywhere. I mean, you use the image of like teenage girls gossiping, mm -hmm. but I have an interesting piece of information for you. Yeah. There have been myriad studies over the years, and guess what? Guys gossip just as much as girls do, okay? They may huh. gossip differently, but they do it to their own depth. They do it to their own sense of following this idea of having a juicy tidbit about somebody. And it has just become part of the energy of how we converse. And it's easy if you think about it. It's easy just to do that rather than to talk about something more positive or talk about something affirming or talking about something that's a social justice issue. Hmm. Um, people have found it as their bypass for having fun. And I think that's a shift that's happened uh, probably over the last 20, 25 years where it has become the center of how we converse with people rather than just being like on the edges of something. And it's become the center of how we converse with each other. Wow, that that gives me a little bit of pause because you're right. I think we tend to now consider it on the edges of it and not like the main part of it. Why do you think that it's become more prevalent? Where do, Where does that trend come from? I think it's been a change. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to stop for a second. Yeah, you bet. It would be great if I had the study to say that. I don't actually know. But I think it's just been this trend that started building over time. Mm -hmm. You know, if we look a little bit about kind of that 80s, that me generation, yeah. I think that could be a place that was like the roots for it. But I don't have some great study I can quote for you on this one. But it is just this thing that it keeps getting more and more and more insidious in yeah. the way we converse. So if I were going to hazard a guess, I would say looking at the 80s, that very yeah. total it's all about me experience is probably the root of where a lot of this gossip as habit as conversation started. What ways do you see it damaging our relationships or damaging our relationships slowly over time? Well, as I was mentioning earlier, rather than coming to someone directly and, you know, dealing with something or being curious, you know, hey, Lisa, I heard this thing. Is this true? And you're like, mm, yeah, it's not true. Okay, cool. We go on. Mm -hmm. That we have gotten so used to this easier habit of just, you know, spreading the rumor without doing the investigation, without doing the fact. And that becomes harmful after a while. Um, we're spreading information that may in no way, shape, or form be true. And I would rather you come to me directly with a question about this thing you've heard than to go to others and start, so do you think mm -hmm. it's true that John is doing blah, blah, blah? Yeah. Um, and I think that can be so harmful to how we relate to the people in our world, to how we're seen or respected in our work environment. And the thing that's so important to understand is it's not just what people are saying about us, but oftentimes if we get the reputation of being the gossip, 
that will also be harmful to how the people in our world see us and interact with us. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, let me ask you this. In your world or your office space, is there that one person you know that, like, if I want this to get around the office, I can just go tell them and it will go like a telephone call around the <laughs> office really quickly? Yes. Everyone okay. has that, right? Where they work okay. or in their family or their friend group, they're like, oh, yep, we know. Yeah. And the thing is, too, though, that's also the person you may not tell something to um, that could be important information because you don't want it spread around. Yeah. And so, yeah, we just have to be aware of how that's playing out in the dynamics of the world mm -hmm. around us. Mm -hmm. If you're just jumping in on the conversation, we're talking with friend of the show, John Sovic, about stopping the cycle of gossip. I think we've really, you know laid a foundation for how maybe prevalent it is that in ways that we might not have previously considered. So now I'd like to to give us a pause and a chance and an opportunity really to to talk about how we recognize that we're doing it, that we're part of the problem and and how we start creating better habits that that make this less likely that that make the environment for when people come to us and talk to us for us to be able to shut it down so for me the first place to do that is with myself i actually quite a few years ago and this is why we're talking about this subject uh -huh. i chose to bring gossip out of my life i stop it dead in its tracks i'm not a person who continues and carries it on if you come to gossip with me i'll be like I don't feel comfortable with that conversation. So the first place is to start with ourselves. And the number one thing that I ask people to look at when they're either spreading gossip or listening to gossip is like, what is the point of repeating the information? I mean, yeah, we're all social creatures and we want to talk and we want to connect. But if we look at this idea that a lot of gossip is based on our kind of most negative instincts, mm -hmm. what is the point of us wanting to repeat that information? Is it true? Is it necessary? Does it need to be said? And the other piece of that, too, are we gossiping because it puts us at the center of attention or boosts our ego? Hmm. So why in the world are we choosing to repeat or keep the cycle of this information going? And that's the number one place to start is with ourselves and look at what our need is in this, you know, this network of gossip. What about more nebulous, like kind of situations where we're, we are seeking advice about a situation or we're worried about someone and asking about them, but it might be interpreted as wanting to gossip? What's your take on that? Once again, it is about evaluating why the conversation is taking place okay, and what our role is in that. Because you're right. Sometimes there is information that could be really powerful. It's like, you know, like, hey, should I be yeah, concerned about this person or I saw something that was kind of alarming? What do you think? And that's where I suggest you pause the triangle and let's say you tell something to me about a mutual friend of ours. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, you know, I actually want to check in with them and see if this is what's happening. And that's that thing of kind of like being willing to step up to the plate with the person that you yeah. care about, with mm -hmm. the person that's an important part of your life and say, hey, I heard you're going through this tough thing right now. Like there's something going on. You might be like, you know, getting fired from your job. Yeah. And they're like, wow, I didn't know that had gotten around already. But yeah, it's true. And it's really devastating right now. Yeah. What a great chance for you to be present with that person rather than to be sitting around the water cooler, you know, hey, yeah. did you hear John's getting fired maybe? Yeah, don't tell um, him. That's yeah. where the power of pausing the gossip gets really, really, really powerful so that we can check in with the real person and then create an appropriate response, a response that's going to help ourselves, that person, and our community get a little bit more powerful, a little bit stronger, grow, support each other, rather than trying to tear each other down with this gossip. Yeah. I think sometimes people use gossip as a sort of social capital, right? They think, well, I'm the one that knows that people want to come to. And instead of being embarrassed by that, take pride in, in, in the fact that they, there are, they know and kind of control that situation. And so I do think that some people who gossip are the, are the ones who want to control it, whether it's out of a fear that other people will be talking about them. And so, so they're, you know, driving the, the, the narrative 
or because they feel like it provides a social need. And that's why people like them in, in, in dramatic cases like that. How how do you sort of when you're talking to that person, you know, kind of get them to stop or at least not involve you in the situation without without offending them? OK, so there's some real specific tips that I like to use with that. OK, first of all, if you're in the middle of a gossip cycle, pause a moment and ask the question, hey, if that person were here right now, would we be having this conversation? If they were standing right next to us, would we be talking the way we're talking? And that's such a like, oh, no, you know, we probably wouldn't. Mm. And to use that as a technique or a tool to pause something that's feeling especially harmful towards another person. One of the ways I like to do it is like, you know, say, hey, by the way, that person means a lot to me. I'm not comfortable with this conversation. And would we say this if they were here? That's a technique that I use personally, kind of my like go-to That's your go-to, when I get yeah. caught up in some of that stuff. And it is one of those most like, oh, yeah, you're right. The other thing to understand, too, and this is another tip that will help you to stop gossiping, is remember, people's loyalties are subject to change. <laughs> so if you're involved in gossip, guess what? You are probably later be going to become the subject of gossip. You can pretty and, much guarantee it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, your coworker may be the subject today, but next week, because you've been part of this gossip cycle, guess who's up on the, on the, on the next on the target, you know? And to be aware of that. So if we're involved in gossip, we need to choose to stop it so it doesn't hurt and harm others around it. And it is totally okay to make it clear that you're not interested in participating in gossip. And you can set that boundary. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you an awful person. It will make you a slightly different person than a lot of people that you may be at work with or maybe hanging around at a, at a social gathering. But here's the thing that can be really fascinating about that. The people in my world know that I am like the gossip, like, stop, not here, not around me, okay? Yeah. But what's happened over time is that if I have a gathering of friends or I'm in a situation with colleagues, is we tend to go into much more interesting and deeper and fascinating conversations because we've removed the gossip out of the space. And with that, we end up talking about really beautiful and powerful things. And I think that's a benefit that's on the other side of stopping gossip that most people, most people aren't aware of. You know, there's that, what will I talk about if we don't gossip? It's like you would be amazed what you can talk about if you're not gossiping. Oh, what a great sort of uh, promise or goal to look for at the end to get us motivated to stop gossiping. Thank you so much for your time, John. Absolutely. And, oh, Richie's coming in the back of the room. We better stop talking. Yeah, yeah stop talking about him. <laughs> Shh. <laughs> It's so true. <laughs> you can find out more about John and his work by visiting Instagram at John Sovic Therapy. Friend of the show, therapist based in Pasadena. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. You can find The Lisa Show on our free BYU radio app. Thank you for listening to The Lisa Show.